0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Vidyamala Birch, and I must say that this is one of the most moving and powerful Insights at the Edge that I've yet to record. For over 30 years, Vidyamala has lived with chronic back pain as a result of a car accident, multiple surgeries, and congenital spine weakness. Searching for a way to cope with her situation, she started practicing mindfulness meditation to help accept and move beyond the pain. She is the co-founder of the Breathworks organization in the United Kingdom, where she teaches mindfulness-based approaches to living with physical pain and illness. She is also the author of the new Sounds True book, Living Well with Pain and Illness, The Mindful Way to Free Yourself from Suffering. I spoke with Vidyamala about her 30-year experience with chronic pain, what it means to turn towards pain and soften, and about how to live one moment at a time. Here's my conversation with Vidyamala Birch. Vidyamala, you have an unusual approach, at least I think unusual in terms of a popular view of how people deal with pain which is instead of trying to get rid of pain, we actually turn towards it. And I'm wondering just to begin here if you could talk a little bit about what that means, turning towards our pain, and also how you discovered that as an approach that could be helpful.
1: Okay. So, um, well, I've discovered it as an approach that can be helpful, having completely exhausted the other method, (laughs) I'd say, because I'm I'm an active person, I'm quite driven, quite um, uh, ambitious in a certain way, and I've had pain for a long time now, since I was 16 years old, and I'm now nearly 50, and my initial response was just to try and push on through it and live my life as if I was normal, and I did that for probably 10 years, Um, I wouldn't say successfully, because I was in a not in a very good state mentally all that time, but successfully in the sense that I managed to keep going. And then I completely sort of ground to a halt when I was 25. And it was a hospital chaplain when I was in hospital in Auckland in New Zealand who first um, introduced me to working with the mind. So this lovely, lovely elderly gentleman sat by my bed, took my hand and uh, invited me to remember a time I'd been happy and a place when I'd been happy. And I took my mind back to the mountains of the South Island of New Zealand, where I'd done a lot of hiking and climbing as a teenager, and been ecstatically happy at times in those mountains. And I took my mind back there, and my experience completely changed, even though I was still lying in a hospital bed, still still in desperate pain, um, lost, confused, physical pain. But my my experience completely changed by what I turned my mind towards. Now obviously at that time I turned my mind towards um, a vis- more of a visualization practice. But that opened the door to me working with my mind. So then after that I, learned, uh, I got lots of books out of the library and so on, and meditation, relaxation, and just tried to um, e- explore this, um, this very very new topic for me of that i had this mind and i could use this mind to change to change how i experienced myself in the present um but after a few years of doing more visualization type of meditations i i was i was still i I realized i was still using my mind to escape my experience if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so i was becoming more adept at working with my mind but i was still trying to if you like um a will a sort of parallel universe into existence which meant i was still at odds with myself a lot of the time and then it was when i was i came to england in um the 1980s and i picked up a bookshelf a book by stephen levine called Who dies in a bookshop and he had a he's, he's got a chapter in that book on working with pain and he he talked about turning towards your pain you know turning around stopping running away turning round, facing it and being with it and that really resonated, not so much in the sense that that's what I was doing, but in the sense that I knew intuitively that's what I needed to do if I was to have peace of mind. And so I started more this, this meditation, a sort of meditation, which was more turning towards my experience, I suppose, which is more like a sort of traditional mindfulness practice. And it took a long time. I'm not saying this was an overnight learning, but over many, many years I discovered this Um, What a sort of insight, I suppose, that this thing I called pain that was uh, in in a certain way ruining my life, certainly um, impacting very strongly on my life and my quality of life, this thing I called pain was actually made up of many, many different components. And as long as I was running away from it, turning against it, trying to escape it, I was never investigating it to find out, well, what is this thing called pain? And the many components, um, what I teach now, is you can divide that experience of pain into two main elements, which I I call primary and secondary suffering. And the primary suffering is the actual physical sensations in the body in the moment, which in my case is is back pain, leg pain, neck pain on the whole. But actually, that is very, very bearable, and it's it's changing all the time. Sometimes it's quite bad, and sometimes it's, it's really not really bad at all. And then the secondary suffering are all the ways that I say to myself I don't want this experience I don't want this to be happening to me so it's mental tension and uh, I'm talking the first person here but this is of course what everybody does I think in the the experience of pain so it's all it manifests as anxiety, depression fear, uh, mentally and then physically it's secondary tension because if you've got that kind of impulse in your being of I don't want this experience then you're going to have secondary physical tension so you, this thing you this thing you call pain which is so dominant in the life of someone who's living with pain uh there's one that you can't change which is the actual physical sensations in the moment but everything else you can change all those sort of mental emotional and physical secondary reactions you can change And by working with that, actually the experience of pain becomes much, much diminished and your quality of life improves, well in my experience, almost beyond recognition.
0: Now now let's say I want to investigate my own experience and start making a distinction between primary pain and secondary pain. How would I do that? What would I, oh this is primary and this is secondary. How do I start knowing where that line is?
1: I think that the way you know what's secondary is, it's got a quality of resistance, a quality of, well, I I find the word resistance very um, immediate. It's like a kind of blocking quality. So the primary is something that, when you turn towards it, the primary has almost got a, a quality of movement in it, fluidity, change, process, whereas the secondary is something that's quite rigid the quality of, of aversion, and I suppose resistance and aversion. So that's what I look for in my experience. Like, where is where is that felt sense of resistance? And then, if I take my attention to that felt sense of resistance, I breathe into it. I soften around it. I bring kindliness towards it. Gentleness. Uh, another word I really love is tenderness. So bringing a quality of tenderness to that uh, resistant, aversive felt sense. Mentally, or, or physically, or emotionally, then that changes. So, does that does that make sense? The sort yeah. of quality of of resistance in your being that's what secondary suffering is secondary.
0: Uh huh. That's helpful. Now, to give our listeners a sense, can you talk a little bit about your own life journey with pain, and the the kind of pain you've experienced, and and maybe share with us one breakthrough you had in in working with the pain that led you to some of the discoveries you're now sharing with other people?
1: Okay, so as I said earlier on um, I was a very fit and active teenager and child and I was brought up in New Zealand in, in the sixties where it was a very nice place to be brought up very beautiful, quite, quite safe, so my experience was just sort of running running around the place as a child and doing a lot of sport And then when I was 16, I lifted someone out of a swimming pool doing life-saving practice, ironically, and my back started to hurt. So it wasn't a kind of dramatic um, dropping, you know, dropping over at the time, but it was more an insidious um, onset of pain. But quite quickly, it became quite bad. And when I bent over, I couldn't stand up again, and I found sitting very difficult. And it turned out that during that uh, lifting, I'd fractured a part of my spine which was a congenital weakness which i didn't know i had up to that point so i had surgery the following year when i was 17 had a fusion operation and then there were complications from the fusion operation uh, which meant i had to have another big operation six months later uh, so that was when my chronic pain really set in but i was still pretty active at that time um, so i i could walk and lead a what well, looked like a normal life, although I was living with pain. And then when I was 23, which was about five years later, uh, I was a passenger in a car accident. Car drove into the into a telegraph pole at the side of the road, on the open road. And amongst other injuries, I fractured the middle of my spine. So it was in a, a different, the first uh, surgery was on my lower spine, and then I uh, crushed the vertebrae in my middle spine, which wasn't diagnosed at the time. So I was sort of walking around with this um, extreme pain after that accident. And I also got very bad whiplash in that accident. And you don't really, you don't want to get whiplash when you've got a fused spine because there's nowhere for the shock to sort of go. So I was left with a lot of neck pain then as well. So, um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a determined sort of character. So even after the car accident, after about four months, I went back to work I was working as a film editor at the time, a sound editor, working very long hours. Um, and as I said earlier, when I was 25, I got to a point of collapse, really. I couldn't keep running any longer. And I would say my major breakthrough was very, very, very intense. Um, I had some injections in my spine that went wrong, so I ended up in an intensive care ward, a neurosurgical intensive care ward. Um, and I had to have a particular test which meant I had to sit up for 24 hours after the test and at this point I'd been flat on my back for several months so I couldn't really sit up it was it was asking the impossible and I think in notice I can't really remember but they didn't have these modern beds that kind of prop you up so I was trying to hold myself up and it was in the middle of the night in this Um, very, very intense situation in this ward with people terribly ill, which, of course, I'd never been around. You know, it was my first real exposure to very intense um, human suffering like that. And I had these two voices in my head. It was very, very, very interesting. And one voice was saying, I can't bear this. I cannot get through till morning. And another voice was saying, but you have to So I had these two voices, one saying, oh my God, I'm going to go mad, I can't bear it, it's impossible, then another voice saying, but you have to get through till morning. I can't, you have to, I can't, you have to. So it was a very, very strong sort of dialogue between these two sides of my mind, I suppose. And then I had another voice come in very, very strongly. And this voice said, you don't have to get through till morning, you just have to live the moment. It was a very, very strong voice and immediately my experience changed dramatically so i went from being very tense very agitated um desperate i would say to being quite relaxed and a, a fantastic sort of confidence came in because i thought well i can live this moment i can survive this moment and i can live this one and i can love this one and i can live this one so i realized that this whole concept of getting through till morning was not real somehow that, that was something I'd, I'd lived my life up to that point thinking in terms of getting through till the, till the morning or the next year or whatever but in that experience I realized all of that was fabricated and all I had to do was live this moment fully but of course at that point I had no I'd never meditated I had no experience of any kind of spiritual path. I mean, i have been nominally brought, nominally brought up a, a Christian, but it was all rather nominal. So I was very... I, I did get through till morning, obviously, and I was absolutely fascinated by what had happened. It felt very real, very true. And I thought, I need to find out about my mind, about time, about space. What is the future? What is the past? What is the moment? And, you know, when you're young, um, you know, I was only 25, it was all really fascinating and very alive and intense and engaging. So I would say my life changed profoundly in that moment in the middle of the night when I was in hospital when I was 25. And all my work since then has sprung from that experience of realizing that there is only this moment to live Mm. and that I can live this moment.
0: I'm curious if you could connect for us what you said about resistance and secondary suffering and this discovery about just this moment?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, Well, obviously, before I had that discovery, I must have been absolutely crushed by secondary suffering. Because this whole idea of I can't get through till morning, oh my God, I can't bear it. This is impossible. All All that was something I was doing to myself with my secondary suffering, with my inappropriate um, reactions. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but just my, um, my unawake, unaware mind doing its thing. That was all secondary. So maybe what the discovery is, I'm just thinking this aloud now when I talk to you, but maybe if one is fully in the moment, living the moment, um, open to whatever's happening, there isn't any secondary suffering. Mm-hmm. that secondary suffering is all generated in terms of wanting something different to happen in the next moment you, want, you know waiting for a better moment in the future when there's no pain I mean that's, the, that's putting it very crudely but all those kind of thoughts and emotions around oh god I can't bear it not this again that behind that there's a kind of fantasy about being free of whatever it is in the moment that, that one doesn't like So I'm thinking if one is truly present, then there there isn't going to be secondary suffering.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm curious, as somebody who uh, deals a lot with pain, are you in pain right now? Yeah, I am in pain right now. Could you describe to me from a a primary suffering perspective what that pain is like for you right now?
1: Okay. Um, So in my lower back, I've got a. Um, the whole back of the vertebrae's been removed, so in that part of my spine, my spinal cord isn't protected. So I I get a lot of pain there. So it's right in there, I've got a kind of toothache sort of feeling in the middle of my lower back. I've got pain in my sacrum. I've got pain down my right leg, down the side of my leg, nerve pain. I've got pain in my toes and in my feet, Got a bit of a headache um,
0: Vidyamala I think most people would say you sound like you're in terrible shape <laughs> well one of the things that's
1: very interesting because actually I don't feel, yeah it's not great, no it is, it, physically it's not good but overall you know, I'm really enjoying talking to you, I feel quite it's not like I'm thinking oh no my life's awful actually I'm quite happy to be here right now living this life Um, But what I was going to say is one of the very interesting things about living with pain for a long time, like I have, is I can't remember now what it's like not to be in pain. So therefore, I don't have a comparison. And of course, a lot of distress is because, say if you fell over tomorrow and broke your leg, you'd have a memory of what you felt like today when you didn't have a broken leg. So you think, oh no, I've broken my leg, it's awful. Well, you might not, but most people would. Um... And I think if yesterday I hadn't had back pain and then today I had this, it would be pretty unbearable. But because I've had this for so long, it's that my whole sort of baseline's changed and this has become my normal. So I live my life from this baseline normality and then I have all the normal sort of range of happiness and joy and um, interest in life that anybody has. But my baseline normality is just an altered one.
0: I think what's remarkable in you describing your current state of being is here you are the author of a book, Living Well with Pain and Illness. And I could imagine someone listening, hearing this and, and saying, how incredible that this woman can be living well with, with this much pain. Well,
1: I suppose it's, I suppose it's what's the alternative. I sort of feel I have a choice. And, and this is after, you know, I've been on this path no, nearly 50, so half my life now I had that insight in hospital when I was 25, so it's been 25 years, and I have been through some really tough times in those 25 years, so I wouldn't want people to think, oh, it's all just been lovely and happy, because that's not true. But 25 years is a long time to be living with this sort of thing and trying to come to terms with it and make peace with it and so on. And... I suppose my current feeling is I have a choice to live well or I have a choice to be completely miserable. You know, if, I, I've, I've got a lot of pain anyway, so why make it worse? Why make it worse for myself through my mental, emotional, and physical reactions if I have a choice? you See what I'm saying?
0: I totally see what you're saying.
1: Yeah. I think when I learned, a real breakthrough for me was when I really, really realized it wasn't going to go away. So the whole fantasy of, oh, I wish I could go back to the way I was when I was 10 or something. The whole fantasy of going back in time to when I didn't have pain. When I really laid that fantasy to rest and I thought, well, okay, here's the deal. You've got pain and you can have a good life and you've got pain or you can have an awful life. That's your choice. Which do you want to take? And I thought, well, okay, I'll have pain and I will would, would really commit myself with every ounce of my being to living well with pain because that's a better choice, that's a better life. And actually, you know, generally speaking, I have quite a good life, which is which is interesting, as you say, you know, because it doesn't, when I describe my pain, it doesn't sound particularly, well, it sounds pretty grim. Mm-hmm. But uh, compared with a lot of people, you know, I don't have a bad life, in terms of my mental and emotional experience, I suppose.
0: I can imagine that, Part of what might be hard for somebody who has pain, the idea of turning towards it and being with it, is, you know, it could overwhelm me. Yeah. It could be more terrible than I than I could experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a very reasonable fear, isn't it? That's a kind of intelligent fear, in a way. But with the way the way on our courses, the way I, I introduce this whole concept of turning towards pain, isn't. It isn't even verbal or descriptive, but it's more that I'll get, I'll get people in the class to lie down on the floor if they can get on the floor, make them really comfortable, you know, really care for people, say, are you warm enough, would you like a blanket, is your pillow the right height, would you like an eye bag, so people feel cared for, that's terribly important, and then we do a body scan, which is a meditation where you simply very, very gently just sort of move into the body, investigate the sensations and experience in all the different parts of the body. It takes either 20 minutes or 40 minutes, depending on um, the detail that we go into it and how long we've got. And at the end of doing a body scan, people will have had a felt genuine experience of being with their pain. But it's very indirect. It's not like I'm sitting them down and saying, "Okay, turn towards your pain. Because that would be really cruel. Because it could be frightening. But because it's all um, done very, very gently and very invitationally, by the end of it, people will be more more in their bodies. They will be experiencing themselves in a much more kind of genuine, real way. But it's very non-threatening. And then they think, oh, well, I can do this. And very often, their experience of pain will be eased because all that sort of secondary stuff has been softened through the body scan. Um, An image I sometimes use comes from um, Suzuki who talks about the arising of wisdom being like going for a walk on a misty day and at some point you become drenched but you don't know at what point that happened. You just start off dry and you end up drenched Mm -hmm. but at no point have you thought I'm getting wet now and I think the body scans like that the way I lead it. You start off um, probably not in touch with your body if your body's a fearful place to be. And you end up kind of saturated in awareness, but at no point is there anything sort of harsh or, or sudden about it. It's more it's just almost by magic, you end up sort of embodied. And then you think, oh, actually this is better. It's better to be embodied because that's a truer way of living than trying to continually escape the body and then having all that kind of secondary stuff that I mentioned before. So that's what I would always say to someone, is, to work, is just do the body scan. Uh-huh. If you just do the body scan, something will happen. And it won't be frightening for most people.
0: And in the way that you teach the body scan, am I looking for resistance and letting resistance go? Am looking for places where I'm contracting or holding back or frozen?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that some, some people lead body scans. And and they say you shouldn't give any sort of directions. It should just simply be noticing what's happening. But the way I lead it is I I do tend to invite people to, if they notice tension, then to take your awareness there, breathe into it, soften, and let go of the contraction with the out-breath. Because I think, well, if, if you've got a lot of physical pain, it's helpful to have those kind of instructions. Because that's what you want to do, isn't it? You really want to soften and let go and be free of that contraction so it's not it's not that you're exactly looking for it in a kind of searchlight way but it's more if you encounter it on your journey through the body then you're trying to learn a whole new habit of softness rather than having a habit of of, um, of harshness contraction, resistance it's like learning a whole new way of being which is as soon as you encounter any kind of resistance in your being the habit is to turn towards it, move towards it breathe into it and soften and let go down towards the earth so you're always sort of giving up to the earth beneath you Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because the earth can receive all that stuff you know um and if one's got habits of resisting pain which you know i was a real expert at i was never i was never giving myself to the earth beneath me i was always kind of pulling away from the earth um pulling away from my experience and that just led to tremendous kind of tension mentally and physically.
0: Have you ever had the experience of feeling, since you've been working with these kinds of practices, like, oh my God, I'm just going to be overwhelmed by the amount of pain I'm tuning into?
1: I've had times where, you know, I've cried a lot, just felt absolutely sort of overwhelmed by sadness, I would say. To be overwhelmed isn't quite the right... I've never felt I, I couldn't stay with it and sometimes when I've felt a lot of sadness and sorrow there's been something really rather beautiful about that uh-huh. Do you know what I mean you know, when you're really in an experience and you're just it's appropriate when you have this kind of pain it's appropriate to feel sad from time to time and you know sometimes I've just cried and cried and cried and I've felt something sort of um, that's been really sort of stored up on my body flow out so actually that's that's not been an unpleasant experience surprisingly it's been a real and true experience but that's lessened over time and I used to find when I did a body scan that I would go to sleep and that's very common you know people just sort of zone out (laughs) if you've been really resisting being in your body for a long time and then you're learning how to be in the body just to kind of shut down and go to sleep quite quickly is not uncommon and I just say to people, well, never mind. You know, you may maybe you're very tired and you need to have a rest, but just keep doing it. And uh, I found over the years, I, I very very rarely go to sleep now. So it's like I've learned how to very gradually, very gently be with my experience. Um, but to answer your question, I don't I don't think I've ever had an experience where I thought it was intolerable. I think because it's always been a relief. It's always been a seed of relief in there because I've known when I turn towards my experience and then with my experience I've known that that's the only real way to live my life that all the times when I'm turning away from it trying to escape it blocking it denying it that's always got a taste of falsehood but when I'm with it and I'm being an alive human being in this moment with whatever's present I suppose I intuitively think well this is this is the best way to live my life it's the authentic way to live my life. And I know actually when I when I'm able to do that, I'm a much nicer person to mm. be around. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not sort of brittle and
0: snappy mm-hmm. irritable
1: the way I can be when I'm and I'm trying to push it all away.
0: Well one of the interesting parts of the book, Living Well with Pain and Illness, was you talked about these two patterns of resistance that most people seem to fall into when they're not turning towards their pain, and, and you called it blocking and drowning, yeah. and, and I wonder if you could describe both of those for us.
1: Okay, so, um, I mean, this is just something I've come up with based on my own experience and the people I've taught, but I think most people do tend to have these patterns, so if you've got a primary experience that you're not accepting, and you're resisting and you're blocking, you know, you're trying to sort of turn away from, then... Um, I suppose the most common one is the blocking, which is a sort of denial. So blocking is, I mean, I call it blocking because that's what um, my experience is. I'm I'm mainly a blocker. So I wish I could do this and you could see my body language because what I'm doing is I'm pushing away with one hand, which is my pain, and then with the other hand it's a bit like you're trying to lead your life um, a bit like a hamster in a wheel, going round and round and round but only, only with one side of your experience and i think that um, blocking manifests as things like overworking um, all sorts of addictions i think all addictions are uh, manifestations of blocking so smoking eating recreational drugs prescription drugs uh, talking you know i think that sometimes those of us in pain we can we can resist our experience by talking a lot which is of course exhausting Um, So all those kind of running away from habits, I would say, are blocking. And then drowning is the opposite. So generally speaking, I think we we can block to a point where we get exhausted and then we crash. And when we crash, um, we're overwhelmed. So drowning is really overwhelmed. So in my case, I can, um, not so much these days, thankfully, but in the past, I might block for months on end getting more and more sort of hectic and frenzied and brittle and alienated and then you know eventually I would get exhausted and I'd go to bed and, and the pain would be overwhelming and I'd be depressed and I'd lose perspective and my pain was everything in my life and I was never going to get out of bed again um, so that's more the, the the drowning side and I still but I still think drowning is a manifestation of resistance because you're not just with your experience in a kind of honest and true way. Um, so they're both both blocking and drowning are both expressions of an unwillingness to be just. we just with one's experience in the moment, it's just an alive human being who happens to have pain in the moment. Because if you're if you're just with your experience in an honest and true way, if I'm with my experience right now in an honest and true way, then yes, I have got the pain that I described to you earlier but because I'm not either blocking or drowning I can also have perspective which means I can also notice the pleasant things in the moment and the pleasant things in the moment that I can describe to you are there's a kind of pleasant feeling around my heart which is just the pleasure of talking to you there's a sense of tremendous kind of engagement and interest about having this conversation you know just sort of being um in communication with another human being in a genuine and real way, so that's very pleasurable. There's um, a light in the other room, which is a very lovely kind of uh, glowing colour. Uh, I've got warm feet, that's pleasant. Do you see what I'm saying? So when you're neither blocking or drowning, then you can open to the tremendous kind of breadth of your present moment experience. That so will include the pain, but will also include... Um, the pleasant things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas when you're when you're drowning, you're just experiencing the, pa- the pain. And when you're blocking, um, you're numbing yourself down to the pain, but you're also going to numb yourself to the ability to feel things like love. So when I'm blocking, which I'm good at, I genuinely don't experience my pain as much. It's very very interesting. I can genuinely think, oh, my pain's not too bad. But then I'll see a sunset, and I won't feel anything. Yeah. It's horrible. You know, you just feel like you're only half alive, because you've, I, I sort of anesthetized myself to um, a whole band of sensitivity in my awareness.
0: Well, I certainly relate um, tremendously to what you're saying, more so in terms of emotional pain than okay, yeah. physical pain, and I'm sure many listeners, some may be. Yeah, some I mean, that, all
1: the same principles apply to any kind of
0: discomfort. Yeah. However it's manifested. And the question I have for you is, so I, I notice in any given moment that I'm either blocking or just drowning and just giving up and saying I can't deal, or I'm, I'm actively distracting myself through some blocking mechanism of some kind. What do I do? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good question.
1: I think all the stuff, I, mean, I was going to say it's simple. I think one of the things I love about all the stuff that I teach at Breathworks is, that, is I always say to people, this is not rocket science you know anyone can sort of understand the principle of you got pain you don't like it you block you you resist it and you're either going to be blocking or drowning and I think as soon as you can identify as soon as you can notice it something changes that's the wonderful thing about awareness you know as soon as you think oh I'm in a state of resistance as soon as you say to yourself I'm in a state of resistance something will soften something will come alive And I think if you notice that you're blocking, then the practice is to turn towards your experience and soften. And if you notice that you're drowning, the practice is to broaden your perspective. So the image I use is like a lens on a camera. So if you're drowning, it's a bit like you've zoomed in on the close-up lens. So you need to pull back to more of a wide-angle lens on your experience. And maybe actively look in the moment, well, what's pleasant? There's always something pleasant. I've not yet found a single person who couldn't find at least something, you know, one tiny thing that's pleasant. Um, when I was in hospital a few years ago after I had another operation which was really hideous and I got an infection afterward and was very ill and I tried practicing this, I thought well, it, what's pleasant in my experience right now? And I noticed, it was, it was actually exquisite, I noticed the crisp sheets that I was lying on and I thought, well, that's pleasant. You know I've got nice clean sheets on my bed and, it, and my experience changed so to summarize if you notice that the, the first thing to do is to is to notice what's happening so bring mindfulness awareness to your experience and notice it and if you notice you're drowning then broaden out your perspective and, and sort of scan around for something pleasant whilst also staying open to the unpleasant so you're not hardening against that if you notice that you're blocking then soften your breath, that's always a good one because if if one's blocking, one's generally contracting around the breath in some way so soften the breath and turn towards your experience with this softer, more kindly attitude and just sort of in a way say hello to to the thing it is that you're running away from and I think that's uh, what, what I haven't said yet, which is tremendously important, is that the sort of core of all this work is to notice the um, the fact that everything's always changing, everything's impermanent. So to try and get a much, much more fluid sense of one's experience. Because, of course, when when you're blocking, say, against pain, then the, the assumption is the thing that you're blocking is fixed and hard, and the enemy, and you just want to get away from it. But if you can turn towards it and drop into the more fluid nature of it, then it becomes really quite bearable and even quite interesting. If I do that with my pain, when, it, when I catch myself hardening against it, which is, you know, a lot of the time, if I'm honest, if I turn towards it, investigate it, I've, I'll then realise it's not my whole back that's hurting, it's just my lower back that's hurting. And actually, what are the sensations? There's throbbing, there's burning, but oh, well, that tingling sensation is quite interesting, and maybe that's even a little bit pleasant. So, you, you sort of go into it and investigate it and tease it apart and realize that it's much, much less dense and solid than you realize when you're caught up in that aversive
0: tendency. It's interesting that when you talked about how you first started working with pain, you visualized a, a fabulous beach scene and you were, in, in a way, turning towards something pleasant in imagination, but yeah. that it seems that your work progressed and that it's more turning towards whatever is happening in the present moment, which includes the primary pain and then the pleasant experiences that are just here right now, no matter what you're going through.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think for me, and people are all different, but because I'm a little bit, well, I'm more of a blocking, escaping sort of type, then those more sort of active visualizations that I can do them and they're pleasant but they're a little bit tricky for me because I can use them to escape. Whereas if I, if you're always turning towards your experience and then just investigating what's there and looking for the seeds of joy, looking, because there's always seeds of joy in one's experience, or looking for these very basic pleasant sensations, alongside being open to and, and honest about the unpleasant sensations, then I know, I know that I can stay true to my quest for wholeness, shall we say. That's, in a way, that's what I want to be. I want to be a whole human being who's just living an honest human life, which includes acknowledging the difficult and acknowledging and paying attention to the pleasant and the, the seeds of positive emotion that are that are always present.
0: Now, I know that you work with all kinds of people who are in all different kinds of pain, and... I can imagine some people coming to you and saying, you know, I'm in so much pain I can I can barely even understand what you're talking about, and this is just too terrible, actually, to do the kind of work you're describing. Do you know what I mean? This sounds like a lot of work. I'm in a terrible state of pain. Can you just like inject me with something? Anything? And how how do you talk to the, how do you work with that situation?
1: Well, it's interesting. So far, Um, the courses that I've taught, everyone who's come has been self-referred which means that they come of their own, you know, they hear about us and they come along because they feel they are open to what we're doing so if you like, we have a self-selecting group Um, so generally people are at a point where they're ready to do the work, which, which means frankly, you know, they've probably tried everything else and realized that actually they're going to have to live with this pain, so they're ready to engage with it. So I think it's, it's difficult to use our approach for people who maybe their pain's quite new, say, and they're still thinking, if I do this treatment or if I do that treatment, it will go away, because in a way, well, why would you do all this meditation and stuff if you can just get a drug to make it go away? There has to be some kind of personal motivation on the part of the individual. Um, Having said that, my colleagues have just been running some courses in a town not far from where I live, which is one of the most deprived areas in the UK, with people who... um, They're free courses funded by the government, and they've been told about it by their doctors or other people. So they haven't been self-referred in quite the same way as the ones we do uh, in my centre. And my colleagues who have been running these courses say they've been the most rewarding courses they've done. And if people have come along not knowing anything about meditation, nothing about mindfulness, and terrible pain, some of them. And they've been, some of them, not all of them, obviously, but some of them it's completely changed their life in eight weeks. It's absolutely amazing. So I think, you know, when people have a lot of pain, uh, how do I say this? There is some kind of intuitive sense, I think, for a lot of people that they, they want to learn how to live well with it. You know, if your life is really, really awful and someone says, well, if you do this, your quality of life will improve, that's quite tempting for a lot of people, even though it does involve some work. I also think that, um this is something I feel very strongly about with our trainers and, and the sort of culture that we're creating, if you like, that it needs to be um, absolutely embedded in kindness. So people come along to our classes and what they experience is a very kind, safe, welcoming environment. Um, I mean, I've had one woman on a course a few years ago who was in the sort of state you're talking about, you know, absolutely desperate, awful, awful back pain. She'd sit in the middle of the room and drink morphine and she did find it very, very difficult. And she'd learn a little bit, she'd do a little bit, and then she might drop out. And I, I think she did the course four or five times. <laughs> and she'd phone me up and she'd say, Oh, can I come again? Will you have me back? And I'd say, Of course you can come again. And each time she got something, even though it was really, really hard for her. Um, and anyway, I found it very moving, you know, that she was someone who whose life was really destroyed by her pain. But she, there was still a seed of something in her, even though it wasn't a miracle eight weeks turning her life around by, by any means in her case. But she kept on coming back. And I think one of the things that I like about our approach is um, we, we never say to someone, when well, you've had your eight weeks, you can't come back. We always say to someone, this is the place you can come and this is the place where you'll be cared for. And I think even that it on itself does a lot for people, doesn't it? Yeah. In, the, in this modern world, which is so kind of... Well, well some people with pain are so isolated. Mm-hmm. So just to come to a place where there's normal kind human contact can have a huge effect on people.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I have to say, talking to you, I feel so uh, moved and impressed by who you are. And oh, I really do. You. And I, th- I think w- w- what I'm reflecting on is how... People become initiated into spiritual truths through so many different avenues and ways, mm. and how, in a sense, physical pain and physical hardship has been your your path of initiation. And I'm wondering what you think about that.
1: Wow, well, yeah, it's very, very interesting that because um, you know I'm a Buddhist, we don't teach Buddhism as such on our courses, but. The courses that i run i run them at the buddhist center um and i've there's there's a few people who've come on our courses who have really got it and they're remarkable people absolutely remarkable people who have really woken up to not just living well with their pain in a kind of superficial feeling of a better way but actually really waking up to the spiritual truth of the nature of reality to give it a grand title and I've, I've reflected on this because these people are extraordinary, and they wake up to it in a way um, more deeply, perhaps, um, in a more deeply authentic way. There are many people who come to the Buddhist Centre who, who 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 are fine. You know, they've got a normal life, they've got a job, they're quite happy, and maybe they come to the Buddhist Centre because they they want to relax a bit, or um, they're a bit stressed or something where some of these people have come on our courses, they've they've it's been very deep, and they are, I would say, exceptional people. And I think the, I think that there's uh, a bit difficult to say this without being misunderstood, but the spiritual path I think does involve humiliation. It involves kind of realizing that we can't just sort of add things onto our lives in a of add on meditation or add on being a bit less stressed and just sort of go along in a neatly packaged way and grow and develop spiritually. It seems to me the spiritual path of its very nature involves some kind of um, breaking down, if you like, Mm -hmm. of that um, neatly packaged I don't know quite how to say this. Do you get what I'm talking about?
0: Well, yeah, our our but, big, fat structure of fabulosity.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's like the ego. You think, yeah. you think you've got your life in control. That's it. We think we can sort of add on a few spiritual truths to manipulate our lives so it becomes more and more pleasant. You know, that's what some people might be tempted by. Certainly I think I would have been. But actually what I have found in my own journey is, you know, I've had to kind of let go of all that and and in a way be... Stripped completely bare and my physical pain's been the way that that's happened you know I've had the humiliation of not being able to have a normal career you know that was to lose all that when I was 25 when I, I'd absolutely loved my career in film you know that was devastating losing income it's affected my ability to have normal sexual relationships I mean I've got a good relationship now but that didn't happen till in my 40s that was all really you know all those kind of ideas about what I wanted to be in life, they all got stripped away. And I was just left with being very, very humbled. And I'm very grateful for that now. Because that meant I'd been able to well, I've been able to empathise much more with other people, that's for sure. Rather than thinking being a bit sort of um judgmental of people whose lives are a mess. I can think, Well yeah, I know what that's like <laughs> And empathize with that. Well that's really, really important, isn't it? And I think these people that have come on our courses and have really got something, they have also been humbled by their physical pain, which means they're wide open. And it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful to see. And then they just take off in a way. You know, they, they learn to meditate. They learn to sort of open to the truth. And they're absolutely ready for it. They don't have, they don't have all this letting go to do because because life has done that to them that's what that's what i'm getting at life has already smashed them up and so they're wide open they're open they're receptive i mean there's one young woman who extraordinary this young woman who came on a course a couple of years ago who had had cancer about five years before she'd been a merchant banker absolute high fly, been to Cambridge University, you know, good degree, merchant banking, um, working hard, partying hard, she got cancer, had loads of chemo, um, got through that, and then the treatment had damaged her bone marrow, and she was left with chronic fatigue as well. So when she came on our course, she was just trying to get ahead around what had happened. She'd already been doing my CDs every day, for a few months just completely off her own volition so she got hold of the cd and so she was already well on the way actually very very motivated and then about a year ago she had to um she was told if she didn't have a bone marrow transplant she would definitely get leukemia the worst sort of leukemia and you know most probably die she's only 34 or something like that but because she was doing all this work on herself and meditating and being open, she really sat with that um, choice. She didn't just think, well, I definitely have the transplant. She really sat with, well, do I really want to do this? Am I ready to let go of my bone marrow, get someone else's bone marrow? Um, she was on a retreat with me just before she made the decision. And it was so moving seeing her being so honest with herself, so Decided to have the bone marrow transplant, which was it's a very, very grueling treatment. She's come through it and I got a card from her the other day, which was absolutely amazing. And she was saying that since she made the decision to have the transplant, she's had hardly any fear or stress. She's just been able to stay with her experience and she's had a deep sort of equanimity towards life and death. You know, she was she was quite open to whatever happened. So there hasn't been all this kind of clinging, you know, oh my God, I'm terrified of dying and I must live. She's just been able to be with her experience through that whole process, which, I mean, it's been so impressive to witness. But she, because she had all this experience of chemo before she came across um, our work and, and meditation, she knows what it's like to fight it every inch of the way and for it to be absolute hell. So she's had that experience. And now she's had this other experience of what it's like to just be with each moment of experience, no matter what it is, and to come out the other side with a hundred percent donor bone marrow that's working, that's functioning, so it's been completely successful. Um, and it's so beautiful, and she is such a beautiful person. I mean, mm-hmm. it's extraordinary to see her. She's only 35, and it's felt like she's really got something got something really profound now i don't believe she would necessarily have got that if she was if she hadn't been so challenged by her health and having to let go of everything again she's had to let go of her career she's left with chronic fatigue you know so she's not able to lead a really active life but she is utterly at peace and that's a beautiful thing to see isn't it
0: Mm -hmm.
1: a human being who's I would say, I mean, I don't think I'm being grandiose. I would say she is utterly at peace with herself. She's mm-hmm. funny, she's witty, and she's, she's really got something. Through this experience of um, being humbled, being humbled by her body has enabled her to wake up to something completely new, I would say. Very, very beautiful.
0: What do you think the difference is that some people in that kind of situation might have drowned and drowned and drowned in their self-pity or, or you know, and, and other people decide to follow the kind of program that you teach in mindfulness and a, and a meditative approach and taking this different moment-by-moment investigation? Is there some different quality why some people go one way and some another?
1: i really don't know i suppose one of my one of my sort of missions if you like is to just try and get this stuff out there as wide as i can because maybe it's simply that some people don't come across it you know that partly why i've started the program I, that i've done is because if someone had told me about this 25 years ago it would have been fantastic you know i've had to figure it all out for myself which has been a long lonely path so i think i think maybe that's maybe i mean there's obviously differences in temperament and conditioning and habits and so on but maybe it's simply um what one's exposed to Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so if if, wouldn't it be a wonderful world if if um there was a sort of training and how to be human that was just part of what you got when you went to the doctor Mm -hmm. but it's certainly not the case in the health system over here i don't know what it's like that Approach could be much more widely available. Then I, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm quite optimistic by nature, and I think that a lot of people, a lot of people would recognise. Oh yes, this is a good thing to do if they were exposed to it, if they knew about it. Which is why it's so wonderful that you're publishing my book, because more and more people will be able to come across it.
0: Well, I certainly hope so, and I know Sounds True will do everything we can, and it's been really an honour and a a great upliftment to talk to you. I I really appreciate it. I've been uh, speaking with Vidyamala Birch, uh, the author of a new Sounds True book, Living Well with Pain and Illness, her own uh, remarkable story and her own discoveries that she's put into a mindfulness training program that she explains in in quite some detail in the book, Living Well with Pain and Illness. Uh, Thank you for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.
0: For Sounds True, this is Tammy Simon, soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey.